Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 1 to 7 this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, I hope that this sermon this morning will kind of whet your appetite and encourage you to come back this evening. Uh, This evening, we're going to be picking up the same theme that we're talking about this morning and discussing what it means to proclaim the gospel in a diverse community, in particular, what, what that means for us as a church here, Crawford Avenue. And so I encourage you to come back this afternoon. Uh, we'll be meeting at 4 o'clock here at the church. And uh, we have a presentation. There'll be a discussion time as well. And so I'm looking forward to that time with you this evening. This morning we'll look at Acts chapter 6. And I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. We'll read through to verse 7. <clears throat> now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, about five years ago, the elders of our church penned a vision statement. And the vision statement was essentially an expression of what it would look like if God were to bless our church and allow us to become what the Scriptures are calling us to be as a church. And so there were a number of things that were written down in that vision statement. Say that if if God really blessed our church and we were to become the faithful church that God was calling us to be according to his word, this is what it would look like. This is our vision for our church moving forward. There were a number of things that were written down. But one thing that was written down was this. I want to read it to you. If you're a member of our church, you've heard this before because you've gone through our members class. Here it is. Quote, we are a diverse people not because our central focus is diversity, but our central focus is the gospel which inspires diversity. And as a result, in our city, which has been broken by racial division for centuries, we are a compelling witness, influence, and voice for racial reconciliation, end of quote. Now, the church that gathers here this morning is the fruit of a church merger that took place on September 13th, 2015, so about two and a half years ago. But when that vision statement was penned by the elders of Berea Baptist Church in a predominantly white church in Evans, Georgia, about five years ago, God was up to something, something that we could have never seen, something we could have never known at that time. Because in just a few years after that statement was penned, 
Berea Baptist Church would be providentially united to Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, and all of us would find ourselves located here in this place, in this neighborhood of Harrisburg, and in the larger community of downtown Augusta. With a unique, and I trust divinely appointed opportunity to see that vision become a reality. You say, well, why a unique opportunity? Well, given our present context in the neighborhood in which we reside, the mission to reach our local community demands that we think biblically and actively pursue what it means to proclaim the gospel in a diverse community. In one sense, we could say there is no way that we can now ignore it. We must wrestle with this. We must think about it biblically. We must actively pursue it if we are to experience gospel faithfulness. I've shared some of these statistics with you before. And depending on what study you look at or what statistical analysis or uh, research you look at, it varies a little bit, but it's all within the same range One study says that the residents of Harrisburg are made up of 40% white, 43% black, 3% Hispanic Latino, 3% Asian, 4% mixed, and 1% other. And God has sovereignly and providentially placed us here in this community in the center of a diverse community, and if you were to broaden that to the larger CSRA, that diversity would be reflected in the larger community. And Jesus is calling us to make disciples here. Now, here's the good news. I believe, and I'm speaking here in particular about the members of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, because you're the ones that I know, okay? I mean, know well. I believe that we all want this. I really do. I believe that by the grace of God, if you were to speak to one of the members of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, they would say, yes, we want to reach our community. It would be wonderful to see this place full of even a more diverse people that is a reflection of our community and of the larger body of Christ. And so, my friends, that's good news and an evidence of God's grace among us. Here's the challenge. Achieving that gospel diversity often proves more difficult. You know, even today, still consistently studies show that about 90% of U.S. congregations, that is, congregations in the United States, are made up of at least 90% of people from the same race. So 90% of U.S. congregations are made up of 90% of people from the same race. Now, some might then ask, well, does that mean that all congregations, all biblical faithful congregations should be multi-ethnic, should show more diversity than that? Well, no, not necessarily. There are churches that are planted or embrace a particular mission 
that result in, necessarily result in those churches not being multi-ethnic. For example, in our community, if a group of people were to say, okay, we are going to plant a church to reach Chinese-speaking individuals, okay, the result is that church is probably not going to be multi-ethnic, right? Or you think about other communities around our country. There there are communities where, say, it's 96% white or 95% Hispanic. You plant a church in that community, it's probably not going to be multi-ethnic. That's understandable. But we also have to recognize that that's not us, right? That's not where we live. That's not where God has placed us. That's not where we gather for worship. That's not the community that God has providentially placed us in. That's not our mission field. And when we think more largely of the diversity of the communities within our nation, the diversity of, um, of our nation as a whole, we have to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus, or does Jesus want us to be content that 90% of, uni- of U.S. churches are mono-ethnic? Is, is Jesus happy with us being satisfied with that? I would say based on the New Testament, no. If we're honest about it, we have to recognize that the racial and ethnic makeup of so many of our churches is not just a coincidence. In so many situations, it's not just kind of the innocent byproduct of the faithful preaching of the gospel. So, you know, they were preaching the gospel and these people gathered together and they were preaching the gospel and these people gathered together and that's just the way it happened. That's actually not the way it happened, right? Rather, there were deliberate, for years and years and years, deliberate policies and practices that were put in place by predominantly white churches that ensured the segregation of churches. In which churches said, you're, to minorities in particular, you're not welcomed here. You need to move on down the street. And I don't believe that Jesus is pleased when we're satisfied with the consequences of that history. When we say, well, this is just how we are now, so be it. Crawford Avenue Baptist Church was founded in 1881, and in all honesty, just like so many churches in our community, this is part of our history. But by the grace of God, it does not represent the present disposition of our church. And it does not have to represent the future of our church. Because as we see in the Bible and as we have sung all morning, the God of the Bible is a God of reconciliation. In fact, the entire Bible, you could say, is a story of reconciliation. God reconciling us to himself and God reconciling us to one another through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, as we take up this topic this morning, which is a challenging topic, 
Not only to think about faithfully and biblically, but then to put into practice and enact so that we, we see fruitful results. As we take up this topic this morning, I am optimistic. I am optimistic because we worship a God of reconciliation. And I am eager to see how God is going to demonstrate in new and fresh ways His reconciling grace among us. Now with that in mind, I want us to look at the church in Jerusalem. And there are three stages in our story that I want us to see this morning. First, a conflict. Secondly, a resolution. And third, a result. First of all, there's a conflict. Look there in verses 1 to 2 and we read these words. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So, this is early on in the history of the church. And Jesus has recently, not too long ago, given the disciples a commission to make disciples of all nations, of all ethne, of all ethnic people groups. And we see right here in Acts chapter 6 that this is proving difficult. I mean, God is blessing. The Spirit of God has fallen upon the apostles. The church has grown rapidly. But now, in Acts chapter 6, they experience this conflict among these new disciples. And we see this throughout the rest of the New Testament, that as the gospel spreads to more and more peoples, these peoples that are called to live together in community with one another, these these divisions begin to emerge among them. These prejudices begin to emerge among them, and there's this conflict. In fact, much of the New Testament then goes on to address ethnic and cultural tensions that existed between Jews and Gentiles who were coming to faith in Christ. But what I want you to see here in Acts 6 is that this takes place, this conflict here takes place even before the gospel goes to the Samaritans. You know who the Samaritans are? The Jews, who would have represented the apostles in the church here in Jerusalem, the Jews believed that the Samaritans were half-breeds. They despised them because the Samaritans were the descendants of Jews who had married pagan Gentiles. And so they despised the Samaritans. So the gospel hasn't even gone to the Samaritans yet. The gospel hasn't gone to the Gentiles yet. And of course, many Jews thought that the Gentiles were unclean dogs. Most of us here this morning would be Gentiles. The gospel has not even gone yet to the Samaritans. It hasn't gone yet to the Gentiles. And already we see, even among the Jews themselves, there's this cultural conflict that takes place between them. Notice this in our text. You see that there's two groups of Jews that are represented here. They come from different cultural backgrounds. The first are the Hellenist, or your translation might read, the Greek-speaking Jews. These would have been Jews who had been heavily influenced by Greek culture. They spoke the Greek language, and so they would have felt comfortable with all things Greek. There's a second group, though. The second group are the Hebrews. Now, most of these individuals probably had deep roots in Jerusalem. They spoke Hebrew, and they were culturally, culturally, they were decidedly Jewish. 
Now, given the cultural dynamics in Jerusalem, the Hellenists were oftentimes made to feel out, like outsiders. We can imagine that the Hebrews took great pride in the fact that they spoke the language of their forefathers. They took great pride in the fact that they had remained true to the culture and the traditions of their ancestors. And so there's this tension between these two groups. Culturally, linguistically, there's differences, and now this conflict arises among them. And what's the conflict? What's the problem? You see it there in the text. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So these women are widows. They've lost their husbands. They are unable to support themselves, presumably because they do not have family who will care for them or who are able to care for them. And so the church is providing for their needs. And the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, those who naturally already feel a little bit on the outside are concerned that their widows are being overlooked or neglected. That their widows are not receiving the necessary provisions that they need. And you can imagine that there would be a sense of suspicion, a sense of distrust that would arise. And they think to themselves, why is it that it's only the Hellenists who are being neglected? It seems like the Hebrew widows are being taken care of quite finely. And there's this conflict between these two culturally diverse groups... There's this conflict that threatens already in the early history of the church. The church has not been in existence very long in Jerusalem. Already there's this conflict that threatens the unity and the mission of the early church. Now one of the things I think it's worth noting here before we move on from this point is that ethnic, cultural, and racial divisions are nothing new. I mean, one thing we just need to recognize is that this is not unique to the Jews, right? In no way. It's not unique to our own time. It's not unique to our nation or to our, or to our uh, community. Ethnic, cultural, and racial divisions are as old as humanity. And why? Because we are sinners. And this is what we do. We seek to exalt ourselves above others. And we will devise almost any reason to do so. In fact, when it comes to the exaltation of ourselves above others, we are really, really creative. And you can see it throughout the history of the world. And so our propensity to pride and to conflict and to division runs deep. But my friends, the reconciling grace of Jesus runs even deeper. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, Paul proclaims that Jesus came to tear down the barriers and the walls that we erect between one another and to make us one in him. And right here in Acts 6... The gospel has not even traveled outside of Jerusalem. And we are already seeing Jesus is tearing down walls. Jesus is tearing down barriers. Jesus is uniting his people in the gospel. And that leads us to our second point. There's a conflict, but there's also a resolution. Look there in verses 2 through 6 and we read these words. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said... It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, let me say that there so much could be said about these verses. We could talk about elders, we could talk about deacons, we could talk about congregationalism, we could talk about the primacy of God's word in the local church, we could talk about a ministry of word and a ministry of deed, and in fact, as I've preached on this passage before, I've addressed any number of those topics. But for the purpose of this message, I think the important thing for us to see this morning is that the church in this situation, the church in Jerusalem, entered into this mess, this conflict, and they sought a solution that was both culturally sensitive and encouraged unity in the body. Notice this. Seven deacons are chosen. And what we notice about these seven deacons is that they are both diverse and they are qualified. So they are diverse. Now you might not see this right away just reading the text, but it's noteworthy that all seven of the deacons that are listed have Greek names. Now it is possible, and of course the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, right? It is possible for a Hebrew to have had a Greek name at this time. And so some of these deacons may have been Hebrews. But it was much more likely for a Hellenistic Jew to have a Greek name. And so commentators have pointed out that many, if not all, of the seven deacons that were appointed would have been Hellenist. Now just think about this. How wise this is of the apostles in the church in Jerusalem. Not only how wise this is, but how loving this is for the church in Jerusalem to decide that those who are feeling like they are on the outside, let's let's bring them in. Let's welcome them. Let's reassure them. Let's empower them and give them a role to play in resolving this conflict. But notice as well, not only were these deacons diverse, but they were also qualified. You see there in verse 3, they are to choose men of good report, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. And so they were to be appointed not just because they were Hellenist, they were to be appointed because they were qualified. And again, we see the wisdom in the apostles and in the early church regarding this. I mean, it would have done no good to appoint immature or contentious members of the Hellenistic community to settle this dispute. In fact, that would have made matters worse, right? And so we see that the solution that the apostles come up with, the solution that the church in Jerusalem comes up with when there's this conflict is both culturally sensitive... They invite the Hellenists to be involved in the solution, and it encouraged unity. They appoint wise, spirit-filled men to lead this effort, and the conflict is resolved. Now, I think it's noteworthy as well, and we should point this out, that the apostles' solution was not to say, 
you know, this is getting, this is getting kind of sticky. Everybody's kind of upset here, and this is a difficult situation. So I think the best thing for us to do is we'll have a Jewish church here, and then we'll start a, or a Hebrew Jewish church here, and then we'll start a Hellenistic Jewish church down the street. That was not their solution. And as the gospel goes forward, and the cultural tensions become even more pronounced as the gospel goes to the Samaritans and the Gentiles, the apostles' solution to these cultural tensions is never, well, let's have a Jewish church here and a Samaritan church here. Or let's have a Jewish church here and we'll have a Gentile church here. That is never the solution that the apostles offer. When these cultural conflicts, ethnic conflicts arose in the church, the answer of the apostles was always to go back to the gospel, press them deeper into the gospel, and encourage unity in Christ. And it's interesting because in the West, actually, we have created an entire church culture that encourages the kind of segregation that I was just talking about. It's referred to, actually, as the homogeneous unit principle. Okay, I'm going to explain to you what this means. The homogeneous unit, uh, unit principle. It's actually a theory or a principle that has been uh, made popular in the church growth movement for years. And the idea is that in planting a church or in designing the outreach ministry of your church you should look for a particular group of people, isolate that people, one particular type of person in your community, and then uh, point all your efforts towards reaching that particular type of person. So an example. And we could give all kinds of examples, but here's an example. A church decides we're going to reach young millennials in our community, and so we want to find out everything we can know about young millennials. And so... You know, they enjoy coffee maybe or their average income is $35,000 a year or whatever it is. They like to listen to Taylor Swift, whatever it is. These are the cars they drive. So, so you find out everything you can about this particular group of people and then you design your church to reach those individuals. And the idea is that if you do that, your church will grow faster because... People like what they like, and people like being with people who are like them. And you know the thing about it? It works. If you approach church that way, there is a sense in which it works because people like what they like, and people like being with people like them. But you know the problem with it? There is nothing particularly supernatural about doing church with people who are just like you. It doesn't require, get that, there is nothing particularly supernatural about doing church with people who are just like you. It doesn't require a mighty move of the Holy Spirit in your heart or in your church or in your community. Civic organizations can pull that off. 
And they do it all the time. And so the world's not impressed. But you know what has the aroma of the supernatural? Is when Hebrew Jews say to Hellenistic Jews, even though we come from a different experience, and even though we speak a different language, and even though our cultures are not the same, your burdens and your concerns and your hurt and your pain is mine because we are one in Christ. And so I want to empower you to make sure that you know and that you feel that your widows are properly cared for because we love you. That's supernatural. And what we see here in Acts chapter 6, and this is so important to see, is that this is just a hint, just the smallest hint in Acts chapter 6 of the type of loving, outward-focused, others-oriented, giving, sacrificial community that the gospel would birth. The gospel hasn't even gone to the Samaritans or Gentiles yet. And there's so much more of this to come. So much more of this to come. We're to love like Jesus. We're to lay down our lives like Jesus. And that brings together all kinds of different peoples who are willing to lay down their uh, their interest for the sake and the interest of others. And when that happens, now something significant, something gospel is taking place. Listen, my friends, we can know that kind of community here. We can know that kind of community here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. Jesus Christ died so that we could experience that kind of community. And he's offering it to us. It's there for us. We just have to take it. Third, A conflict, what was my second point? A resolution. Third point, result. Verse 7, look there in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, what's going on here in these verses? I mean, you see this result, it's quite remarkable. One thing we could say is that, well, unity is good for business. Maybe it's just that simple. I'll have to, uh, I have to admit to you that I have some interest in the mafia. I need to clarify that statement. I've never been in the mafia, nor have I been involved in mafia activities. So I just want to clarify that. But I do periodically like to watch documentaries on the mafia or movies about the mafia. And my understanding is that in the early 20th century... The mafia in New York City developed what was known as the commission. It was the heads of the top five families in New York City. And they came together and they developed this group together called the commission. And the goal was that they would work together, these five mafia families, in order to maintain peace between the families. And the reason was, peace is good for business. Even the mafia recognizes if we're always crossed up and we're, you know, there's beatings and killings and all that, it's going to take the focus off of business and the profits will decline. And listen, in one sense, this is true for every organization, right? It's true for a school. It's true for a business. It's true for a nation. 
Even the mafia recognizes that peace is good for business. And surely it's true in a church. If a church is marked by hurtful words and broken relationships, if a church is marked by ongoing division and splits and conflict, it detracts from the mission. I can imagine that if the Hellenists had decided, well, we're not going to stay, we're going to go down the street and start our own church, I doubt you would have gotten the same response in verse 7. I doubt you would have gotten the same result in verse 7. But I think there's more going on here than just peace is good for business. I think what we see here in these verses is that the gospel unity in this church is showcasing the glory of God's reconciling grace and in so doing is unseating the doubts of unbelievers. And again, it's not just a natural unity, you know, where you get together with people who are just like you, but a gospel unity, a unity with people who come from different stages of life, whether older or younger, a unity that, that is uh, based even or goes beyond uh, experience or background, where you unify with others who look different than you or have different interests or preferences. I'm talking about a gospel unity. This gospel unity in the city of Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem, demonstrated the reconciling grace of Jesus. And it began to unseat the doubts of the unbelievers in that community. Do you see it there in verse 7? We read, a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now I think it's fair to say that there was no one in Jerusalem that was more hardened to the gospel than the priest. It was the priest, it was the religious class in Jerusalem that was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. But here it is. The, the gospel has been preached in the early chapters of the book of Acts. The apostles have been declaring the gospel. But it's not until chapter 6 when this, this thing happens, this conflict arises, and yet it's resolved by the grace and the mercy of Christ that pre, these priests come to faith in Christ. What's happening here? Their doubts, their resistance are being melted in the face of the undeniable love that these new Christians have for one another. Do you think that the priests knew about the cultural and ethnic divisions between Hellenist and Hebrew Jews? You better believe they did. And yet they saw these two groups of people coming together in love. And it had a power. It had an influence upon them. That they couldn't deny. You know, this is what Jesus prayed for us. In John chapter 17, verse 20, 21, Jesus prayed. He's praying to his Father. He prays for, for his church. And he prays to the Father, Oh, Father, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus prayed this for us, and Jesus told us if it became a reality, what would happen? He tells us what would happen. I pray that they may be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And that's what we see happening here in the church in Jerusalem. The world believed as a result of their love and unity for one another. Wouldn't it be wonderful for our community to say the same thing about our church? 
Have you heard what's going on at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church? I mean, there is an increasingly diverse group of people gathering together to worship there every Sunday morning. And the thing about it is God must be working among them because they really love each other. I mean, they aren't just pleasant to one another. They're not just polite to one another. I mean, they really love each other. They're involved in one another's lives and families, and they love one another. I believe this is what God is calling us to. I believe by God's grace we already see evidences and signs of it. I believe there's so much more if we seek God. And so where do we go from here? Well, one, I would hope that you come back tonight. There are some things that we believe that we can do as a church and that we're responsible to do as a church to further encourage this type of community, to further pursue becoming a multi-ethnic church. And we want to share some of those things with you tonight. And surely there are things that we are responsible to do. But at the end of the day, we also have to acknowledge that This is way beyond us. At the end of the day, this is only something God can do. And so, I would admonish you to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would enable us to make disciples of all peoples in our community. And we need to pray that as God gives us the grace to do so, that we would be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. And we need to believe that as we pray that prayer, as we seek and as we ask and as we knock, that God delights to answer those types of prayers. And as we pray, what should we expect If we start praying like this, what should we expect God to do? I close with this quote from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a pastor about 250 years ago. This is a paraphrase because the English is really old. He says, quote, An obvious pattern in the Bible is that God tests the faith and stamina of his people as they cry out in prayer for significant mercy. God tests them by withholding the mercy they are asking for. Not only that, but at first, He makes things worse, sending them discouraging setbacks. But count on it. He will eventually prosper those who push through in prayer without quitting and will not take no for an answer. End of quote. So let us pray. Oh God, we pray that in your grace and mercy you would awaken in us a holy discontent. We pray, Father, that you would give us a passion and desire and a longing and a commitment to see your gospel go to this community and to our larger city. And we pray, Father, that the reconciling grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be evident among us and through us in ways that are undeniable to our community. Father, we pray that you would do this by your power and by your Spirit, and we pray that you would do it for the sake of Jesus' name, so that he would be made much of. 
Oh, Father, when we become weary, we pray that you would strengthen us. And Father, we pray that in the weeks and in the months and in the years to come, this would be our prayer and that we would see you work and do mighty things. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.